Hi, I'm Greg Richard. I'm an economist with Fiscal Realities Economists, and I am talking to Manny Jules and Jason Calla. So we we're going to talk today with Jason Calla about uh, an initiative that's been underway for a while called the First Nations Infrastructure Institute. And the main major purposes of this is, well, there are two. And, and one is that a lot of people don't realize that the First Nations land and people are both substantially underemployed. And one of the principal reasons is, is the lack of business grade infrastructure. You know, it, you need resources to build it. And well, many First Nations lack these resources. You need real scarce expertise to plan it and manage it properly. And many First Nations have lacked this as a result of being under the Indian Act for many, many years. And, and so in order to improve Canadian productivity and address the, the uh, underemployment of First Nations people and everything, we need to address these particular issues. And that is what the First Nations infrastructure is all about. It's an investment in the uh, economic potential of First Nations. And Jason's going to tell us how it works. Jason, thanks for, thanks for joining us. And maybe just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and uh, some of the work you're doing. Sure. Well, my, yeah, thanks, Manny. And my name is Jason Calla. I come from the Squamish Nation in Coast Salish Territory. Um, and uh, I have been doing, um, well, I studied finance and economics a bit at school and um, have had a good fortune to be able to serve uh, First Nation communities um, through some work on the First Nations Health Authority for a while, uh, through some work with the First Nations Financial Management Board uh, for a while. And Certainly happy, really interested and excited to be working now on hopefully improving infrastructure outcomes with uh, the First Nation Infrastructure Institute, which is uh, an initiative really spearheaded by the First Nation Tax Commission. So we're we're grateful that you continue to, to lead in important issues that can improve the lives of Indigenous people throughout the country. Um, what got you started thinking about the First Nations Infrastructure Institute? Well, the, the the story I like to tell is that it happened in, in the, around September the 21st, 1997 in Chichen when I saw the El, El Castillo, uh, which is the large uh, pyramid in, in Chichen Itza, and uh, realized uh, it's one of those epiphany moments where, where you see uh, something that's incredible that we built and it's still standing. Uh, over a thousand years old and realized it was built without uh, any federal funding and it was done through our own science, our own engineering and our own uh, labor to, to put it together. And so that that, that to me uh, uh, was a real epiphany moment realizing that we could, the, the kind of uh, capacity we had, the imagination we had and uh, the wherewithal, and and if we started to apply that to our own lives, how much uh, better off we would be. And also the fact that uh, you know, if if we had better infrastructure, uh, we'd be able to look after ourselves. And and th that journey, you know, just took place because of all of the issues surrounding. Uh, taxation, uh, particularly real property tax, and the and the need for infrastructure to to not only service our tenants but also to our members. And and uh, why don't I ask the same question to Jason? Even though he comes from the mighty Squamish Nation, which is probably uh, 
got better infrastructure than most First Nations. Yeah, thanks, Greg. No, it's a it's a good question, and certainly uh, I had an opportunity to work with my own community on a community development plan, which is what we called it at that time, sort of about I don't know ten, twelve years ago. Um, and one of the challenges that we have faced for a long time, um, because there's like a lot, there's population density is quite high where our lands are in the north shore of Vancouver and and even up to the Sunshine Coast and through the Squamish Valley. Um, was really having an adequate um, supply of land for our members to live on. And uh, we have a very long housing list, over a thousand people, and we really didn't have enough enough land to to house everyone. And so one of the things the, the nation started to think about was, well, you know, with the remaining land um, that, we, that we have, with the opportunities we have maybe to look at purchasing land, what are the what are the solutions or the options for us to consider a longer term housing strategy? And as we started to dig into those issues, I began to realize that although I thought the land costs were quite high, um, really that was actually not as high as the infrastructure costs, the cost to service the land. So there was, you know, things that everyone takes, well, not everyone takes for granted. Some people take for granted in this country, which is water and indoor plumbing and uh, roads and, you know, phones and internet connections and to get those kinds of things was considerably more expensive than than just even purchasing the land and so thinking about um like you say greg like well, i feel like squamish is in a fortunate position in some ways because we have some strategically located lands to generate own source revenue which can then be used to support you know investments into things like lands and infrastructure for community members but just recognizing that some other communities which I have, a, have had a chance to to visit through um, throughout the province of British Columbia, for sure, and, and other communities in the country maybe don't have those same opportunities to generate revenue. So, you know, just the general idea of the challenges of, of creating better communities for our people to live in has really interested me. And I think the, some of the ideas for um, solutions to some of these challenges are certainly exists within the First Nations Fiscal Management Act. And the act has been working really well when you think about it. Um, you know, I guess we're, um, you know, 10, 12 years out and we see the number of communities that have chosen to participate and the tools that they're using in the act. But, you know, maybe there's a few more tools that we can add to the toolbox. And really, I think that's what Finney or the First Nation Infrastructure Institute is all about is really supporting communities to do the planning and procurement to, to bring together some of the other tools in the Fiscal Management Act and to support them to deliver, you know, real good value for money when they choose to invest in infrastructure projects on their lands. Well, great. If I can just ask, a, a, maybe we should just introduce the topic a little bit different and, and give people that might be listening a sense of the scale of the problem and what are the unique challenges facing First Nations. Well, the the infrastructure deficit. There's a whole bunch of different numbers uh, for it, but it's obvious if you know, when you go to any any reserve right across the country, uh, it varies from about 25 million to up to about 45 billion, I should say, not not million, and so it's a very uh, substantial amount of of uh, of need within our communities, and you can't uh, really pass a month. Uh, 
without some newspaper article saying, uh, talking about potable water, uh, the lack of infrastructure, uh, all of all of the issues related to real, really poverty, and you kind of question why why that's even happening in a in a first world country like Canada. Well, the uh, my my notion is that it's all about uh, liability and uh, in particular uh, federal liability, and and that limits the amount of resources that can be spent on First Nations land, and also, uh, you know, the inherent limitations of of the governance and jurisdiction that First Nations have got uh, over ourselves that require really us uh, uh, having complete dependence on the federal government and its programs. And so ultimately what we need is our own jurisdiction to be able to generate our own sources of revenue so that we can reinvest it back into our lands. And and one of the uh, most interesting uh, uh, statistics, if you will, is the fact that uh, 110 First Nation communities collect $70 million a year in real property tax. And over those same properties, the federal and provincial governments uh, collect uh, $730 million. And I just can't help but think that if we had those resources, that we would be able to reinvest it back into our lands and determine the kind of priorities that that we all uh, aspire to, being able to look after our children, being able to look after our elders, uh, put in, uh, uh, you know, community centers, good roads, uh, uh, you know, high-speed internet, all of those things that we hope for. And, uh, and uh, you know, that, that only applies to uh, our, the communities that we generally work with. But when you consider all of our communities and the needs that all of us uh, as First Nation communities uh, require right across the country, I believe it, it, it's really going to take uh, uh, federal legislation to, to make sure that we can legislate our way out of the Indian Act and into the economy, and also uh, so that we can collectively work together because one individual community can't hope to reduce uh, uh, all of its pain and suffering and all of its lack of infrastructure on its own. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that we need national institutions to facilitate it. So just to be clear, you're, you're talking about taking, gaining, gaining greater revenue authority and using and taking over this responsibility for a lot of local infrastructure. Well, well, we have to. And, and also, we can't just depend on the federal government. Uh, we have to look uh, for private uh, investment as well. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I'm, we need a, a legislative framework uh, to be able to facilitate true uh, private-public partnerships so that we can look at uh, private investment uh, on our lands, and we've got the legislative framework within the FMA to be able to do that. We've got the, the First Nations Tax Commission that deals with real property tax. We have the First Nations uh, Management Board that can deal with transparency and accountability, making sure that we're transparent and accountable not only to our members, but those who wish to invest in us. And also the First Nations Finance Authority so that we can lever bonds and debentures much like 
uh, as we've all seen uh, through COVID-19 here, uh, you know, the credit rating that the federal government has got and the provincial governments, and indeed, uh, uh, to a lesser extent, the, the municipal governments. Uh, mind you, all of those are stretched to the limits right now, but they do have a credit rating, whereas uh, our communities are completely dependent on the largesse of the uh, the federal government. And really, we get into uh, an argument, uh, a fiscal argument between the federal and provincial governments over who has responsibilities for what. And it, and it ultimately boils down to, uh, very clearly to me, a, a need for a new fiscal relationship so that we can begin to determine our own future based on our own needs and priorities. And again, just to reinforce the uh, the, the notion that we can't do this individually, we have to be able to work as a collective unit right across the country. And the best way, I believe, right now to be able to do that is uh, through enabling legislation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we want to have you know this podcast to educate uh, people about the need for a First Nations infrastructure Institute and and one of the other things that's critically important here is to be able to have national uh, standards uh, so that when we build uh, facilities, uh, whether it be for water or sewer, that we're not repeating what happened in Walkerton. You know where you had uh, because this kind of jurisdiction without standards, uh, you're you're literally talking about life and death. But also. Uh, given the the fact that we're you know living through a, a pandemic right now, it's a stri- There's a striking need for our own health uh, systems, our own healthcare, our own healthcare providers, our own institutions that would be able to look after our own elders. Given what's happening in the, in a lot of the elder care facilities off of the reserves, and uh, the the fact that they've been really infected more than than uh, other populations. So it really is worrisome uh, that uh, a lot of our elders are being taken care of off, uh, off of our homelands and uh, we, we don't really have you know, the jurisdiction or the resources to be able to look after not only our elders but also our youth. Uh, there was just uh, an announcement uh, yesterday between uh, the National Chief Perry Bellegarde and Minister Mark Miller uh, talking in in the range of about three and a half billion dollars to to implement and deal with the funding shortfall of the the, the child the First Nation Child Welfare Act, and so it, it's striking that that all of these needs uh, are present, and all of them relate to the fact that uh, uh, we, we're still living in a colonial. Uh, uh, situation in, in our in our in in this country and the need that we ultimately need to be free and uh, we can't achieve that uh, through wishful thinking it has to be a methodical uh, work uh, to uh, to achieve that mm. so so Jason what services and uh, what services do you think what first off what disadvantages do you think first nations have in, in building and financing infrastructure and what services is finney going to bring to them yeah no that's great great question greg and um i i sort of just thinking about you know manny's description of the scale and the scope of the problem and um you know i know we've all read stories in the 
in the news about those issues, I, I would almost argue that some of those estimates are even underestimates because really what do First Nations submit um, applications for? They submit applications for things that get funded. And um, that's that's not a lot of categories. You're, you're, you know, we see a lot of water and wastewater issues, but I think what has become clear from um, the pandemic and is the requirement for people to have really good infrastructure in a variety of aspects, not just water and wastewater, which hopefully everyone would have access to that. But um, what about connectivity? What about good health um, infrastructure? What about um, emergency responsiveness? Um, what about these types of things that could also be into the mix? So it's interesting to think about, um, you know, what um, what what the infrastructure stock should really be at to support healthy communities. And, um, you know, I guess when we think about that funding gap, I know one of the things we've talked a lot about, um, and I know Manny's said this in different ways, is like we can't just do the same thing, which is kind of what the Fiscal Management Act is really, you know, thinks about is doing things in a different way to get better results. So we know the current system um, for infrastructure uh, has bad outcomes. It takes longer to do projects. It costs more to do projects. And those projects don't last as long as they do in other parts of the country. So if we if we just take a bit more money and, and, and try and do things the same way, um, we don't think that we're going to have very good outcomes still. So I think what we've been trying to do um, at Finney is think about how do we do things in a different way? Um, how do we bring some more rigor to the process of thinking about what the need of the project is, um, you know, and into the planning and the procurement of the project, thinking about different options um, for um, assigning risks to people who are associated with the project. The people who are best able to manage those risks should be responsible for them. And in this way, hopefully we can um, create a better um, way to deliver projects that are built on time, they're built on budget, and they last for as long as their expected life. And a key part of that is really thinking more about operation and maintenance um, and including those costs into the into the project scope. So um, what, is, what does Finney do? That's a great question. And we're really um, working that out through a, a, a project we're working on with Kettle and Stony Point First Nation, um, you know, supporting the community and describing what the project is. So this might sound like a relatively simple task, but oftentimes it's not because you have to think in a real detailed way, for example, with the water project about where the connections are going to be. Um, and similarly for wastewater. So that includes considering um, the lands that are going to be served, the land tenure um, on the lands, whether it's um, member housing, whether it's CP holders, whether it's lessees, whether it's band-owned businesses, whether it's community buildings, and um, being able to describe what the need is that you're trying to serve, and then really working to help develop um, a request for proposals, for example, for a for a feasibility study. And again, that might sound simple, but uh, you know we don't go through the process of thinking about feasibility studies for wastewater treatment plants a whole bunch of times, or hopefully a community doesn't do that. They do it once in a generation, and it lasts for a long time, but since um, you maybe only do that once uh, in a in a long period of time, you know, understanding what the, the the pitfalls are or the best practices are in in preparing the request for proposals and in when once the proposals are are made and evaluating these documents that can be quite complex, 
to ensure that the First Nation is achieving the value for money that they want to get from the consultants that are doing the work. So it's really, um, Greg, forming a project team with the First Nation to support them in the planning and procurement of the project. And, um, you know, we're really in the process right now of working to develop a business case for a project. And I think that's a real important, um, important document. It's sort of a one-stop shop to describe a project and demonstrate that it's shovel ready. This is a term maybe we hear from time to time these days because investment in infrastructure during an economic downturn tends to be viewed as a good investment. And so sometimes we hear in the news that there's, you know, they're looking for shovel ready projects, the federal government or the provincial government might be in. And so the question sort of arises like, what is a shovel ready project? And um, from our perspective, I think we think that uh, that's a project that aligns with a First Nations comprehensive community plan and has defined strategic objectives. We think a shovel-ready project considers different project options, technical options, and determines the optimal scope and scale of the project. We think a shovel-ready project determines the whole of life's cost implications through appropriate technical analysis, identifies the sources of funding, looks at the risks, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and develops appropriate mitigation strategies to um, reduce the impact of those risks considers procurement options and a, and a real good implementation plan. So, so those, all those things should be thought about and should be um, incorporated into a business case um, that, that really is, again, the one-stop shop to describe the project. And that's not a small task to prepare that, especially for folks working in, in, in the administration of a First Nation who uh, have many um, responsibilities maybe haven't worked on a lot of um, business cases. And so we hope that um, Finney, you know, in a similar way to the other Fiscal Management Act institutions, will support capacity development to meet improved standards um, for the planning and procurement uh, of a project. Uh, and those are the types of things that we're looking at, Greg, for Finney to support communities in. I guess one of the one of the other aspects, though, just to, to, to add on to that response, is particularly because of uh, uh, you know the economic situation that Canada finds itself in, uh, we feel that uh, the Infrastructure Institute would add a lot to uh, Canada's economic recovery, uh, making sure that First Nations are part of the re- the recovery plan through uh, shovel ready projects as well as business ready infrastructure, and just uh, you know building infrastructure within our our communities in general. Uh, that meet the needs of our communities. And that means that there will be uh, resources uh, brought to bear, not only for the construction, but also uh, for the larger uh, economic well-being of the country. Yeah, that's something that we didn't really talk about yet, is just the amount of un- and underutilized economic potential that, that requires basic business infrastructure. Yeah, be a real need. I liked what you said, by the way, about the uh, the full range of infrastructure, you know, all the way from basic water and sewer up to connectivity and things like that. Is, is Finney actually prepared to help First Nations across that full spectrum? No, uh, every, every asset class, Greg. Um, in fact, we're currently 
uh, like I mentioned, working with a community in Ontario on a water wastewater project. We're also supporting a regional First Nation organization on health infrastructure projects, including um, uh, need up treatment centers, um, thinking about doing multiple treatment centers into a single single project, the ever elusive bundling of projects, which can, which can present potential benefits. In addition, um, something we've heard uh, from different communities is what about having an, a multi-purpose facility, which incorporates potentially funding from multiple sources and could serve multiple purposes. So some communities may not um, want to have a separate health center from a separate um, band office, from a separate uh, act dev office, from a separate uh, recreation center. Um, maybe the size and scope of the community is such that they want to um, have a more multi-purpose facility that incorporates funding, you know, for, from health, um, which incorporates funding for band support, which incorporates own source revenue, which could incorporate um, some economic development. Um, and how do you build a model that that puts those things together, which has a could be a real sensible approach to a to provide uh, the types of things that are needed in the community, the types of uses that membership want to see, um, but also not overbuilding things so that you have operation and maintenance costs that are too high that puts the nation either in a bad position financially or the asset in a position where it's not going to last for its expected expected life. But yeah, I think the other thing that that's really important here, Jason hinted at it, is working with multiple communities uh, to build uh, health infrastructure, uh, multiple communities to build uh, schools and, and the like, so that we're not just you know, looking at this as, as one-offs in each individual community, but using the scale and scope that's potential uh, that makes uh, these kinds of projects a lot more achievable because you're going to be able to have more buying power, uh, more, you know, an easily uh, uh, accessible in engineering uh, costs and, and the like. I mean, one of the real interesting parts to me, Greg, is... Um you know, we see larger resource projects across the country where um, First Nations are being asked if they, uh, well, first of all, they affect First Nation lands and First Nations have an interest in the projects because they affect their lands. Secondly, there's an opportunity potentially to participate in a project in some way. And if you have uh, these larger projects affecting multiple First Nations, um, you know, do those First Nations develop a way of working together because they have that common economic interest. And if they are working towards that common economic interest on the large resource project, you know, is there, is there also a way that they say, you know what, now we're earning income from this project. Jeez, we've been working together. We all have individual community needs, but maybe we should think about what our, our community needs are and maybe work together to resolve those. And maybe there's a benefit, like Manny says, from, from, um, you know, doing projects together. It doesn't mean that they have to be all exactly the same. It, and it certainly doesn't mean that, you know, we know that communities want to participate in their own projects. They'll have their own design specifications, but there, it seems to me there is an opportunity there to, to build some synergies. So you're going to work with other First Nations, potentially private sector partners and other communities as well? I mean, you don't have to, but it sure would be interesting to pursue some of those ideas. We certainly see other 
communities in Canada doing that. And there seems to be some potentially really good projects from doing that. So why wouldn't we be able to do the same thing? Well, and, and I think the projects aren't going to be just limited to, to First Nations. They're going to be including First Nation organizations, both regionally and provincially and uh, potentially national as well. And is Finney going to work with the other institutions? Because you said something about ensuring the projects are affordable. Well, geez, that's the benefit, I think, of, um, you know, being part of the Fiscal Management Act family, I think, or using all of the tools. I know they're all optional. You don't have to use them all. But uh, it sure seems to me like there'd be some benefits from using multiple tools. Uh, and there's some logic to doing that. So certainly I, that's been, Greg, maybe one of the misperceptions of, of Finney is that um, Finney's providing financing for projects. So we're, you know, Finney's not, not um, providing financing. Now, do we think about the financial model a lot? Yes, we do. We think about the funding options. We think about the financing. But, you know, that would be working together with the tax commission and with the financial management board and with the First Nations Finance Authority to hopefully First Nations could use some of those tools too to bring to bear on a project and um, that would have a greater impact. Are you going to get into the business of certifying projects? This is a, this is a great question. I mean, uh, you know, I think one of the, the great parts that we've seen be very effective in the Fiscal Management Act is that the institutions establish standards and that um, they support First Nations to build capacity to meet those standards. And when, um, when, when you do meet those standards and people, investors uh, are, understand them well, and they understand that the institutions are supporting First Nations to reach those standards, there's a, there's a benefit there. So um, that's certainly one of the ideas we've talked about, Greg, is, is having standards for project development. And I, I know, I, I think I mentioned a, a couple of ideas about um, some of those processes and standards, but um, if we thought about a number of different phases of, of a process to, to develop a business case, that could include, again, you know, project identification phase and, and doing feasibility work and building a business case um, that contemplated, um, you know, an economic case, a strategic case, a commercial case, a financial case, doing some risk management, um, supporting the community and in, in terms of the procurement, the request for proposals and, and like I mentioned, evaluating the proposals and coming to some consensus on the preferred approach and then running the procurement. If the First Nation wanted the project to meet those certain standards um, and they said, you know, can would you work with us, Finney, to, to support us to meet that standard and provide some indication that the standard had been met? That's exactly, I think, the model that's been successful with the Fiscal Management Act and we hope would be something we could build on. Manny, anything to add? Uh, well, I was also thinking of the aspect of uh, utilizing the federal government's expenditure on on infrastructure projects. Uh, right now, you, you negotiate with, with uh, Indigenous Affairs. Usually, uh, the average seems to be about a decade uh, of doing engineering studies, feasibility studies, and uh, one of the thoughts about uh, that we've got is, you know, using legislation to allow the federal government to monetize their expenditures, uh, meaning that w we would be able to get a bigger bang for the buck 
in terms of the infrastructure construction, but as well as as well from the the federal government's perspective. So instead of building, you know, one or two uh, uh, facilities, it would be multiple facilities uh, right across the country, and therefore we all benefit uh, from the federal government's. Uh, uh, you know, ability to be able to monetize. And right now they can't uh, because of their own uh, uh, policies and, and legislative restrictions. And so we're hoping that, that this will allow uh, the federal government to be able to monetize projects. And again, not only do First Nations benefit, but the entire Canadian economy would benefit. So by monetize, you mean they're going to convert their annual commitment to infrastructure into part of the uh, debt servicing stream for, for new projects? Yeah, absolutely right. And Greg, I think we've seen, um, you know, in different parts of the country, some regional infrastructure agencies um, like Partnerships BC or like Sask Build or, or like Infrastructure Ontario. And, and um, while it's optional, uh, you know, it's not a mandatory thing necessarily for, for, uh, different uh, groups to use the services of those infrastructure agencies. What we see um, both here in Canada and internationally is, is the funder governments. So in that case, in those cases, the provincial governments looking to um, make sure that the due diligence work has been done on the project. If they're going to be funding it, they want to have some assurance that there is going to be a project at the end of, of, of the payments, if they're going to be contributing. So, and they want it, you know, to be done on time and on budget, and it's be done to a high quality. So, um, you know, we I think we we envision a Finney process again, not it's similar to the Fiscal Management Act. It's an optional process, but if a community was wanting to reach the standard where the due diligence had been done, where there was a high degree of confidence that the project could be delivered, uh, maybe that puts um, them in a better position to be viewed favorably as a, as a good option for monetizing transfers to, to make this project go. So, um, you know, I guess I just want to maybe add that just saying, you know, we're, we're looking at certainly doing things differently than the current process. And we're trying to look at, um, you know, again, better, better approaches to get better outcomes. So you're going to give the federal government some confidence when it monetizes a transfer. That would, that would be the idea. If this is a good investment. Awesome. Yeah, but not only the federal government, also uh, private investment. You know, one of the things we haven't been able to achieve in, in investment in, in our infrastructure across the country is private investment. Uh, one of the ironies that I, I always raise is the fact that there's only one true uh, in, uh, private public partnership, and that, that's uh, here in British Columbia building a jail on, a, on one of the First Nation communities. It's a Soyuz jail. I mean, it, it, is this half? Is this going to be? Um, will you have to be part of the FMA to use Finney? Well, you you would have to. Yeah. So, Greg, one of the interesting parts I think is that um, you know, and I know um, this has been a uh, an issue that the institutions have been working on for quite a while. Is is a number of Indigenous organizations or or nations had been unable to participate for various reasons, whether they were a tribal council, whether they were a regional organization. Um, and I think that there's been work underway to try and address some of those challenges. So, so like Manny says, the benefits of working with the institutions, is tremendous. And, you know, if you want to, for example, borrow through the first nation finance authority, there may be some 
requirements, but at the outset, it certainly um, don't have to be a scheduled First Nation for us to start talking. So, for example, again, you know, we've been talking to regional um, Indigenous organizations and, um, you know, that they're not necessarily part of the Fiscal Management Act at the moment, but that doesn't mean we can't talk to them about, um, you know, some of the projects they have under underway. And it's interesting, the, the, the governance uh, aspects can get can get complex. You may have a regional not-for-profits set up to um, provide some governance for treatment centers, for example, where multiple First Nations, um, you know, may be working together to have a treatment center in their region. Um, and you could have a regional health organization. So you have multiple levels there. And I think we're trying to understand, you know, how how the business cases can be developed and how how the tools of the act can be brought to bear. Can you No, I think that covers it. Uh, you know, there, there is a level of complexity, of course, when you start to deal with uh, uh, organizations uh, beyond uh, band councils. But the fact of the matter is, is that's how we're organizing ourselves to be able to provide uh, multiple services to multiple communities. And, and we have to be able to uh, respond to that. And the best way is through uh, you know, uh, my my feeling is through the FMA, so that there's a coordinated approach, and uh, we we're able to deliver services not only to uh, individual communities but multiples of communities. In that way, everyone uh, benefits. Wow, that's great. So, um, so how do you think Finney's? What do you think the focus of Finney's going to be in the short and in the long term, or is there a difference? Well, the first step is to, to get this legislated, and by all indications, uh, this seems to be a, a, a developing priority for the, the, the federal government. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, some support uh, from, from the other political parties, uh, but uh, right now it's making sure that we've got, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the tools so that we can begin the uh, process to get, to get a memorandum to cabinet, get ca- cabinet approval uh, for, and basically that entails uh, drafting instructions so that we can start to draft the actual legislation, have it introduced into the House uh, through the uh, uh, parliamentary process as well as the Senate processes and have that proclaimed. And and so, you know, the time is of the eff- essence uh, given uh, the fact that Canada is going to be moving into the, uh, you know, the, the the reconstruction phase, if you will, of COVID-19. So it's critically important that we have the institutional capability to be able to be part of the recovery strategy uh, for uh, Canada in terms of its economic uh, strategy. And that's the, the short term. Uh, the the longer term, of course, well, even as part of the short term is actual working with communities to get stuff built. In the longer term, we're, we're hoping that we'll have uh, better outcomes in terms of uh, less uh, bo- boil water advisories, uh, more infrastructure being built, more business activity, uh, which we would all benefit from. Uh, better, uh, you know, better health care, uh, better education facilities, and all of those other things uh, that go into having, you know, a, a, a vibrant uh, community and, and a vibrant economy. Anything to add, Jason? 
Yeah, well, I just think, um, you know, it's we're fortunate, I think, um, in thinking about the, the sort of uh, process to establish Finney is that we're able to learn from um, the experience of the First Nation Tax Commission and the other fiscal institutions. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to uh, to, to this process and, and really uh, establishing Finney is going to be important to be able to pro- provide the services. We know that. So uh, that's the real, real priority right now. Now, can I ask one uh, last question here? What uh, what revenue sources do you think are available for First Nations wanting to finance infrastructure with the help of Finney? And what revenue sources do you think should be available? Uh, well, well, it's a, it's a, I think it's it, it goes right to the heart of of the infrastructure deficit that we've got, and and the colonial framework under which we operate. Uh, one of the things that's critically important, and, and I see it all the time when I deal with uh, uh, communities uh, within a, a provincial sphere. A lot of uh, you, you'll notice a lot of the provinces are now starting to build houses on reserves, or, or providing funds to to build houses on reserves. They they've been for quite some time now building uh, uh, or providing dialysis machines on reserve. Uh, building, you know, looking at uh, contributing to build elders' lodges on reserves, and the and the reason for that is is because of of provincial liability versus uh, federal liability, and the reason that the provinces are are coming up with the resources is they don't want to look after First Nations when they leave reserve lands, and the more development that happens on reserve lands, the less expenditures and therefore liabilities that they they have uh, from the federal perspective uh, it's you know virtually the same the the more and this goes you know one of the things that I've been really thinking about uh, as well as you know we we need an, a, a proper statistical institute given the complexity of of the fiscal relationship and how that will ultimately evolve. But this goes right to the heart of what a fiscal relationship is. And basically what a fiscal relationship is, is who who does what with what jurisdiction. And our message to the federal and provincial governments is simple. The more responsibility we take on to look after ourselves, the less responsibility you have to look after us, as well as liability. And we're better suited uh, to look after ourselves because we know uh, what the priorities are within our individual communities. And so uh, using that approach, uh, I believe that that there has to be an orderly vacating of a lot of, uh, of jurisdictions that both uh, uh, the federal and provincial governments occupy so that First Nations would be able to step into that that void and be able to exert our jurisdiction, particularly when it comes to a fiscal relationship. Uh, right on the short term, in, in that strategy is is providing more incentives uh, within the FNGST. Uh, the the federal government should give have more flexibility in terms of the excise taxes that are collected on reserves, uh, and just to you know just to highlight that. Uh, excise tax is a tax that all of us pay uh, on reserve lands, and that's an excise tax. It's a hidden tax. Uh, the federal government can choose, and and it does do this. Uh, it it 
it taxes all of us in terms of cigarette sales, tobacco sales, uh, and the like, and, and fuel. And so what we're saying is that those resources should be at the disposal of First Nations so that we can put that money back into infrastructure. On the other hand, we're telling the, the provincial governments uh, that we should be able to get resources from the uh, from the uh, uh, our traditional and treaty territories so that we can put more of that money and resources into infrastructure within our uh, reserve lands so that we can have one in the in in the longer term uh, orderly expansion of our reserve lands uh, so that we can become uh, a, a vibrant part of the economy but all of this you know can happen and and has to happen on multi different levels and there has to be an orderly approach to to doing it so this is about first nations taking control of revenue authority so they can help themselves. Well, absolutely. This is, uh, this is how uh, I think it has to evolve uh, into the future. Uh, we have to be able to have the resources from our own uh, natural bounty, which has been really uh, occupied by the federal and provincial governments. And, and let's be frank about it. Both of those uh, levels of governments couldn't uh, exploit the bounty of, of Canada without placing us onto Indian reserves. And uh, given, you know, the uh, really the underlying systemic issues, if you will, uh, in this country, uh, one of the things that has to be acknowledged is the history and the fact that we've been uh, forcibly removed from our traditional lands, placed on reserve lands. Uh, all of our authorities and jurisdictions are, have been called into question and uh, resources being exploited. And the only way to begin to change that in a fundamental way so that we can be a productive part of the economy is to look at uh, the systemic uh, problems inherent in both federal and provincial legislations have an orderly uh, implementation, if you will, of the, the UN Declaration on, on Indigenous People. And it isn't going to be just one uh, piece of legislation. It has to be a multiple legislative approach uh, right across the country because of the, the division of authorities, uh, constitutional authorities uh, between the federal and provincial governments. And the other aspect of it is, is that, you know, the, the fact that uh, Canada has accommodated, you know, various approaches uh, and there's no, you know, there's no rhyme or reason why uh, First Nations jurisdiction can't be accommodated in the way that, that other jurisdictions have been uh, accommodated throughout Canada's history. Well, Jason, it just sounds like a fantastic program you have going on. Where do you think you're going to be? What was your vision for 10 years from now? I think, you know, certainly um, establishing Finian, I sort of think about the number of projects that um, that could possibly be developed over that 10-year period and the number of people whose lives hopefully would be affected in a, in a positive way by having better infrastructure available to them. Um, you know, we hope we'd be able to be working with uh, communities in every part of the country and on all different types of projects. So um, that's, I think, where the exciting future is. And, you know, I guess the other exciting part is really the opportunity for First Nation people to be involved in these projects. And hopefully, um, you know, not just having access to the infrastructure, but hopefully people being able to work on the projects too. So 
so I see a lot, you know, a lot of potential here and uh, really excited to be working, working on the project. And I hope, uh, Manny, we get another chance to, to do another podcast in the not too distant future and talk about the progress that we're making. Oh, that'd be absolutely fantastic. You know, and just so that everybody's aware, we've got, you know, a, a very good uh, uh, working group that works with Jason, uh, chaired by Alan Claxton, the former chief of Saud and other individuals right across the, the country and, and uh, are working really hard to, to uh, make sure that the, the legislative process is done, but also that it's done in a very practicable way. And so I, I just want to com- uh, compliment not only Jason, but all of those other individuals that are helping him along. And I, oh.